And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. What's up, hustlers? Welcome back. This is Andrew Morgans here as today's host of Startup Hustle, covering all things e-commerce, startups, Amazon, you name it, we're going to be getting into even some warehousing stuff that has to do with e-commerce and automation today. Before I introduce today's guest, I would love to give a shout out to our sponsor for today's episode. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Equip Bids Auction, your Midwest online auction marketplace to buy and sell stuff. Equip Bid provides dedicated support to affiliates in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and Iowa. Join the team and sell everything from heavy machinery to home goods to office furniture. Go to equipbid.me slash startup, equip-bid.me backslash startup for details, or just click the link, save down in the show notes. That was a mouthful. I'm excited to introduce the org to you guys today. Um, He's coming in from California uh, today, and he's going to be sharing with us about his business, Envia Robotics. Lior, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me here. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, sorry. That was a mouthful. We've had a little bit of issues getting us started, but I'm excited to pick your brain today and just kind of learn more about your own story as well as, you know, everything you're doing um, today and in the future. But we're talking a little bit before the show, but I'd like to get into kind of just like, you know, your, your backstory a little bit. Like, where did you get started in, in e-commerce and IT? Um, did you know you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? Uh, you know, go as far back as you'd like to share. From the beginning? Well, I mean, um, I, didn't, I never knew I was going to be an entrepreneur or a business owner. I kind of fell into it. Some people were like out of the womb, ready to make money, you know? So where yeah. did your story start? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, my story did start a little bit later, right after high school. I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually joined a music program uh, at a community college. I was really into music, so I did that for okay. uh, But at the same time, I started working at different um, uh PC stores that were setting up, started doing the first early dial-up services and stuff like that. I worked from there. Uh, I was really interested in computers my whole life. So I did have a lot of background in programming, but it was mostly for fun and for doing stuff. And then uh, back in uh, 94, 95, you know, I had this vision while working at that store that um, we'll create this 3D mall. And back then 3D was like Vermal. It was like these lines that um, if you've ever seen Tron, like that was, you know, and the idea is yeah. that you walk through it and do the shopping and stuff like that. We created a company uh, called Food Mood, actually, and we we're going to do it first for different uh, food stores. Uh, went out, actually, was in Santa Monica and Brentwood, went to all the different stores, explained to them the idea that, hey, these people are going to be shopping online and we'll fax you the order. Right. And you, they can have your store there and they can see the food items and stuff like Let that. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask a side question. Was... Was the Sims out in 95? I think so. The- it it might have been. I think it's right around there. And they okay, had, yeah. you know, it was like more, so the Sims were sort of like more programmed kind of thing. And it was going to base loosely on that. But it was. I just remember it being so revolutionary. Like as someone, I was playing games and I was very involved with, with computers even as a kid. And I remember when the Sims came out, it was like, you know, you could see your, it was like first Oregon Trail. Do you remember that when you got name your characters? Now Sims, we get to like, 
you know, uh, do life with people that look like us. And we're like walking around doing a job. I could, I could very much see around that time being like, well, we could, we could shop, we could do all kinds of stuff like with these avatars. And exactly. I was just wondering if that technology had came out yet. Okay. So maybe it just came I, out or something around that. Yeah, but it wasn't web friendly yet. So the thing that was okay. web friendly was like this basically, you know, was HTML and they also had this 3D, I think it was called Vermo, where you can actually do it's HTML in 3D and you can create different stuff. Okay. And Pearl basically back then too. <laughs> yeah, I remember Pearl. Again. Um, and it's just, you know, it's it sort of, so, okay, so, so we, we started that, right? We started like going multi all these stores and trying to sell it to them. That was the first, um, you know, kind of thing, me going out in the real world right away from a job, away from a security thing. And nobody wanted to buy it. Like not only didn't want to buy it, they didn't even understand what the heck we're talking about. They didn't understand who's going to be ordering online. They didn't understand what they're going to do. They're like, look, we're going to stick to the phone book and didn't sell a single thing. Luckily, at some point, uh, my partner got together with Caesars Palace and they looked at it and they're like, wow, we can do this. We do all our forum shops. We can load them up on that. And they totally thought about it from a branding point of view. They didn't also didn't think anybody's going to buy, but they thought, hey, it's going to show them as innovative as doing this stuff. So they paid us actually quite a bit uh, back then. Again, I think quite a bit. I think it was like they paid us like 60, 70,000 or something like that to build that shop for them. And we did that. But what we did too is we maintain all the rights for that shop. So then we started okay. reselling that shop to other, basically shopping carts, right? To other businesses as well. So soon enough, we had like Baskin Robbins and some other high-end clients. And then also we started getting some um, lower-end clients as well, telling them now like, hey, you know, Caesars Palace is doing it. Baskin, Bas Baskin Robbins is doing it. Do you want to do it too? And slowly people started, okay, you kind of see that and started picking up. And uh, so we renamed the whole um, platform actually to HostPro and we started just doing hosting having the first, uh, you know, kind of shopping cart experience and all that stuff. Uh, Hostpro later on became web.com. So it just sold to Micron. Micron sort of took into the ground. We branded it. We used to host web.com at that point. And they okay. bought Wow, that. you had web.com. Yeah. So, and then they kind of rebranded Hostpro because they kind of drove it. But, and so that was the, you know, the, the story there. And it was the first, um, you know, startup. I was fairly young. I think I was like 24, 25, something like that. We sold it. We sold it for all cash. It was pretty lucky because we also sold it in 1999 before everything just crashed. We had no idea that it was going to crash. It wasn't any timing issue. It's just somebody came in. It was, you know, Micron, and they're like, "Hey, we're going to give you a bunch of cash uh, because of business." And we're like, "Okay, okay," you know. <laughs> and uh, we didn't take any investors back then either. Um, so it was just three partners, you know, split everything equally. Um, Talk to me about the crash, though. Talk to me about what what you're referring to in the, in the crash. I knew the Y2K was like a, a, a threat, but then, but like, what what really crashed from '99? Well, the whole dot com boom started crashing in 2000. So a lot of people, because what happened is that you know the, the internet started really getting exciting, and a lot of people started investing tons of money in it and technology, and everything goes into a cycle. And at some point, people realize, well, it's going to be really tough to make money on certain aspect of things. Yeah, there are really good things, but at that sense, it's there were tons of, you know, BS things that probably should not exist, but we're driven. I feel like we're actually living in that same kind of economical sense right now. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of startups that maybe should should not exist, but because there's so much money being pumped in, there were all these crazy valuation, all these crazy things, and now we're going to see is just a bunch of corrections. And the right. ones that are really a business that are providing something useful, not. Um, you know, not basically, and they told Jeff Bezos that at one point, so I don't think it's really bad, but, you know, selling um, 
you know, a dollar for 99 uh, cents. It's, you know, th there's some aspects in there that maybe you got to do this, but at some point you got to go and make some money and it has to be a real business. I think we're going to see a bunch of corrections now, especially next year. Um, I think we saw that on the Amazon side, not to, not to get into it too crazy, but um, you know, there's some crazy multiples the last couple of years with a, yep. you know, 20 something billion coming in as aggregators and buying up Amazon brands um, as well as when the pandemic happened and there was less places for investors to put their money. They look toward uh, e-commerce product based businesses because they were, in, which is connected to supply chain and warehousing, right? Like goods, goods and D2C. And um, they said, oh, these are some actual profitable businesses that we can invest mm -hmm. in versus like, let's say, tech startups that have yet to prove, you know, the models. And it's more about hypotheticals. They're like, let's go put our money somewhere short where we know it's making money. Um seen some of that we also saw that what's happened is a correction in that the banks they've realized that banks uh or financial institutions don't yeah. have the knowledge uh or experience to essentially run a good business online a good amazon or e-commerce business and so it's correcting again um but it's interesting to see and i just wanted to understand you know i was 16 years old uh in 2001 you know i was actually grew up in africa so i was coming back from congo in, in 2001 had been involved in computers since they, since you could have the first PC. My yeah. dad was cool like that, and we had the first PC. So I'd been playing around with dial-up and satellite internet and games and things like that, yeah. but didn't really understand the business side of what was happening, you know, during that time. I know, obviously, uh, uh, you know, September 11, 2001 changed a whole lot of things for the U.S. Yeah. as well. But understanding from the development side, you know, on Amazon, you used to be able to just put a product up from 2012 to 2016, basically any type of product and be successful. It was it was a crazy time. Um, things have changed now. You have to be good at what you do to be yeah. successful. Okay, so so okay, so I got a little context on you know kind of what you meant. We sold before that time, so you sold to who who later so, became so, yeah. So we sold Micron to Micron PC, and then later on they they actually we sold it and uh, rebranded it as Web.com and took that public. Okay. So, Cool. Yeah. So that was like, the, you know, the first experience in really business entrepreneurship, running a large company, running, you know, having multiple people um, underneath me trying to deal with that. How does that work? And how do you mm. manage that? And how do you get people to be productive? And, you know, I was really uh, fortunate to have met, you know, my partner, also Alex Kazarani, who was amazing and, you know, just taught a lot of me about the business and stuff like that. I was more on the IT side. He was more on the business. So, Learned a lot from him. Um, then afterwards, I actually joined the PhD program at USC. Um, I actually went right right to it. I started dealing a lot with robotics. I really enjoyed robotics. I was doing a bunch of research. And one of the professors there just said, hey, you know, if you want, I can just get you into the PhD program. Um, so I was like, oh, that's awesome. So I did that. Uh, but at the same time, Alex you know, called me and said, hey, we're doing another business. Actually, this was the third business. We did Knowledge Base, which was a CRM uh, solution. We were competing yeah. head with Salesforce. And same thing, actually, we ended up selling it to Talisma. Maybe too soon. Salesforce, was, I don't know if you remember back then, was really fighting hard to get things on the cloud. Uh, they spent tons of money on that, and we weren't sure where we we're going to stand. So we ended up selling it to Talisma. Uh, still made some money, but it wasn't like as big as we thought it, we wanted to take. Um, but then again, it's right after I joined the PhD program, Alex calls and said, we're doing EdgeCast now. So EdgeCast was a CDN, Counter Distribution Network. Uh, we're going head to head with Akamai at that point. Um, so, so that was also an awesome experience. We started building that um, and then we sold that uh, to Verizon. Um, 
just recently, like October 2014. And I knew I wanted to do something with robotics. I really wanted to figure out, you know, how do we uh, how do we automate things? I'm not too much into the philosophical aspects of robots. Like, what is a robot? Is it alive? Is it, to me, it's very simple. Can it do a task that mm. we want it to do? And the, the way I differentiate it from a standard machine, can it, adapt, can it adapt to a different task in a very short time frame or very small resources? So, for example, right now, what we do is robots in the warehousing. And the reason we call them robots is we can adapt to various warehouses, various shelves, various things. So basically, we create an, an automatic storage and retrieval system, SRS system, but we can work with any floor. I don't know, you work with Kiva, right? So, you know, with Kiva, you have to go yeah. mirrored finished floors. And there were still robots, right? They were still somewhat adaptable, but there were certain limitations of it. Um, and we actually looked at the Kiva model when we first uh, created Invia. And we thought that that was a good model, except that you have to raise the whole rack. And the randomness of things happen that you just bring the rack and you often pick one. It's always great if you end up picking two or three, but that's extremely difficult and extremely difficult to predict that, like, you know, a week in advance when you did the replant. So this is where we decided, okay, you know, we really have to basically concentrate on the container. So it's one item that gives us a lot of flexibilities. But anyway, so that's one of the things. We let's, let's, yeah. let's, for anyone listening, let's give them a little bit of a visual of like, what that is like what a robot in a warehouse is doing so like i physically worked in a ups warehouse through college um you know that 3 30 a.m to 8 30 a.m you know shift where i'm picking them off of a train loading them on the ups truck you know marking them in order it's a it was a very hard job for a four-hour shift anything over four hours i think was overtime so like just to put it in perspective of like the, the labor intense um you know warehouse jobs at a high level are you know, they're fast paced and they're like down to the minute and the second, how many packages are you grabbing in a handful and walking into that truck? And, you know, it's just very optimized, at least at UPS it was. Um, and then I worked at US Toy Company and we were exploding e-commerce when I was there. I was the e-commerce manager, but all hands on deck, like in Q4, we were a toy company. So if they needed us, we were going down to the warehouse and, you know, helping as much as we could. I was, I'd volunteer, get me out of my desk, get me out of my cube and go down in there and load some trucks. And, uh, you know, for me, um, it was the first time I saw Kiva robots. And for anyone listening, what they do is they have these like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they have these locations on the ground where, uh, you know, it's kind of going to like GPS coordinates more than it is just like free roaming. And, you know, it has some kind of order system where it's saying, go grab this stack, uh, you know, and it goes, it's a robot, almost looks like a Roomba. Uh, and it kind of goes under the, the rack and picks it up and then takes that rack over to the picker. who yeah. might be like, you know, is, is prepping the package or like boxing it up or whatever the case might be. And so what it's doing is bringing that shelf or the, the selection over to the picker who then like, you know, there might be several selections there and he's reaching into one basket and grabbing the item. And I think what you're discussing or describing is some of its uh, shortcomings being that in that system, it's usually like one pick per, per robot. The robot's bringing over a, a stack, um, you know, of options, but it's usually probably just like one from row number three, grab it, you know, add it to your package. And then another robot needs to come to bring you the next item. Yep. Um, is that, am I following correctly? No, that's, that's correct. And then there's another problem there that has to do with just the way humans work. So that person that you said that picks at that shelf, right? So a big shelf will come into that person, person has to pick. Another big shelf comes in, person has to pick. So now what Amazon actually wants is for that, those people to be robots. 
And the reason for it is they have to operate at that rate that these robots are bringing the shelves in. And robots are really consistent. They're really good at just that consistency. We'll bring it over and over again. People are not great at consistency. They like to burst, right? When you come into the work, you kind of work for a little bit. They want to take a break or you have to go to the bathroom. I mean, this is why you hear Amazon giving a hard time for people going to the bathroom. And you got to look at it from their end. They got millions of dollars of automation. That person that was sitting there picking, if they just left to the bathroom, those millions of dollars of automation, all the orders, everything is waiting on that person. So yeah. it's and not- what we know about people is that people will find a loophole in any system. Exactly. To be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not hating on workers. I'm just saying we've all done it. But yep. if you understand, okay, the system takes away my lunch break here, it takes away this, or it takes away that. Okay, I'm going to take an extra 15 minutes in the bathroom. I'm going to watch some TikTok videos. I'm going to take eight bathroom breaks because there's no limit to the number of bathroom breaks I can take, you know, and then the news gets a hold of it and they're running with the story. I'm not trying to discredit any of the, the truths to that, but I'm just saying like when you're looking at a system and you're like, uh, well, this is a, this is an area that we have a problem, which is like, you know, focus, attention, uh, you know, yep. all those things. So I can understand where they're coming from in that regard from both sides, I guess. And just understanding that, these are the loopholes when it comes down to labor and, and systems like that. Okay, so. Yeah, and we saw I'm that. Sorry. Yeah, no, exactly. And we saw that firsthand because when we first created our system, we did it like just a standard ASRS system. So an ASRS system is basically an automatic storage and retrieval system. Kiva can be considered an ASRS system, uh, but it carries the whole rack and brings it over. We were basically carrying just the container itself. So instead of picking up the whole rack with those items, we can take those containers and we do it. Um, but the way we've created this business um, is very unique. We actually created this robotic as a service. And I think we're one of the ones that are really truly doing it robotic as a service. And that actually led us to various innovation that I'll go over in a second. But what we mean with robotic as a service, it's not a lease. So a lot of people with automation, like Kiva was sold. So Kiva, you know, basically sold an implementation. The implementation itself cost millions of dollars because you have to go in you have to get mirrored finished floors. You have to redo the floors, redo the racks, redo everything. And that costs a lot of money and time. In fact, if you, even if you look at Amazon right now, I think about 30% of the warehouses are actually run by Kiva. The rest are not. The rest are run by people because it's still it's very expensive to go and change everything. And there's limitations of what you know I can and cannot do. So they're still running. For me, for me, it was a it was a kind of crazy oxymoron because the company I was at was like a catalog company like traditionally that was trying to move to e-commerce that was like trying to get out of the like old you know dark ages so to speak of business they were doing everything old school but they had these robots i couldn't make sense of it you yeah. know it was like everything was old school except they had these like you know to me the most one of the most high-tech things i had seen in a warehouse um they had these robots running knowing that what it must have cost uh, and maybe it was, you know, what it cost before Amazon. I'm not sure if that was like, you know, a different price point when they were trying to get started versus like yeah. once they sold. But, um, okay. So there's like, cool that you have the system. It's a thousand bucks, but it's a hundred thousand to install it. Like for yeah. example, exactly. like just like, okay. Yeah. So it's exactly. So, it, you know, it just ends up being quite expensive and takes a long time. And a lot of companies can't afford that, right? If you tell hey, you know, you said you have a free PL. If you tell your kid tomorrow, you're going to shut down your 3PL for six months while we do that deployment. You're like, well, I mean, I, I'm a small person. I can't go and start another warehouse somewhere and start moving that. I just, you know, how, what can I do now? What can I, because right now I'm under pressure. Yeah. And I think one thing people also don't realize with e-commerce 
is we, we, we didn't live in a world where half of the U.S. you know was ordering online, the other half was picking for us. We actually live in a world that we as consumers used to go to the store and pick it ourselves. Do the now, work. Do the work. And we're expecting personal shoppers now, right? You, or even I joke around, like we want the Star Trek replicator. You look online, you click the button, and you expect it to materialize right next to your doorstep. However, it happens, you don't even care. And if it happens, you know, within an hour, you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. If it happens within two days, you're like, I guess so. If it's over a week, you're like, what are they doing? I'm not going to do this. Two weeks is too long for me, right? Um, but a lot of businesses are struggling to do that. And even just the labor itself, you know, people like we talked about, you know, they want bathroom. They want to burst. They want to have more fun working at the warehouse. So the labor pool is very, very small. They're, everybody's fighting for a very tiny portion of it. And people quit. I mean, all the customers that we talk to, they just have a really hard time finding the people to work. And especially now after COVID, most people just want to do a remote job, um, everything. So that, you know, that, that causes a very big change. Now, for us, like I mentioned, so we are a true, but I believe robotic as a service where we're not leasing the robots. We're not saying, hey, we're going to give you, you know, 10 robots and you lease them at X number of dollars, let's say $1,000 per robot per month. We're actually selling the productivity of the robots. And that aligns the incentives very well, because what it means is that for you is like, hey, I need to fulfill X number of orders per hour. So we'll supply a system that does that and we'll make sure we have enough robots, we'll maintain the robots, we build the robots. Same thing is what happens today with email, right? Back in the old days, if you remember, you had to build your own email server, you have to get an IT person to maintain it, you have to do all that stuff. You're really part of the IT business in some sense, one of you know your companies where today most businesses don't have to be. You just go to mm -hmm. Google, Yahoo, you know, uh, Microsoft, and you get on their own email server, they have the IT, they maintain everything for you. So we're taking that same approach into robotics. Now that allowed us to actually create some innovative things because of people. So now we're tied into people as well. So the productivity, right? We're selling the productivity of the robots, but the productivity of the robots are tied to how the people are working. And we have to develop a system that will allow this, the people to burst and to work on their own schedule and the robots to continually go to adjust. Yeah. And, and I think that really opened up um, the door for us quite a bit where, you know, we're able to not just elevate the jobs that people do, but actually make them happy. We talked to a lot of pickers that said, you know what, we're thinking about quitting now. I actually see myself retiring here and we can go in more details on how our system does it. But we basically add a buffer. And because we're able to manipulate the containers and in a very unique way, allows us to build these picker walls that work ahead of time. So if you think of the Kiva robots. You couldn't really do it with the Kiva because the shelf is just too big, but you could stack up all the shelves ahead of time and have the person just go one by one and they converse and then you basically set the other one. Now, like, batch, because, like batching a little bit. Exactly. Kind of. Yeah. So you basically prepare, you, you place, it's like buffering, right? So you, but we're buffering the containers as opposed to the full on shelves. They're a lot smaller move. Exactly. And that gives us a flow. So we basically build a wall with all of the orders that they have to pick right now and as they're picking it the robots are manipulating the wall back then so you know if the person goes into a break or does something the robots are still building the wall they're still doing that and when the person comes in they're usually really good at like if they just went to the bathroom and you know you took a little break and you got to keep up your productivity you're actually really good at coming in and bursting really quickly and then kind of going back into you know the standard mode and that works really well because now that has been prepared for you you can burst really fast and you go back so overall we actually get quite a bit high pickers and you've probably heard about 
um, we're getting pick rates in a thousand UPH. And that's wow. very close to like 700 lines per hour. It's, it's different touches. It's not the same one. So it really works very, very well um, in that by, again, combining those kind of um, what people do best and what robots do best, right? And that's what we believe um, to do. I have some questions, but before we do, a reminder, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Equip Bid Auctions, an online marketplace dedicated to growing small auction businesses. They're solving problems and providing a fun re-commerce or liquidation shopping experience to value bidders. Go check out their incredible offerings and sign up at equip bid.me backslash startup. Okay, so let's just say, one, technology sounds absolutely amazing. Two, I'm trying to visualize it. Yeah. Okay, so um, I'm in, uh, I started a, uh, I've been in the e-commerce business, you know, helping brands, agencies, uh, manufacturers for 11 years in the e-commerce space, Amazon space. Um, for every Amazon FBA or like using Amazon's fulfillment service, there's also almost always in, in an advanced strategy, a, uh, a 3PL backing up those FBA orders with something we call FBM, which is fulfilled by merchant, something similar to um, shipping website orders, right? Just not from Amazon. Um, no. I've got about 12 brands uh, that we're pushing, you know, maybe and, and nothing insane, you know, maybe um, anything from a thousand orders, a couple of customers have a thousand orders on the D to C side a month. Um, you know, so we're probably less than 5,000 picks a month just with uh, like website orders and things like that. Obviously, prepping products for Amazon and Palette in, Palette out is completely different. Um, so a bit of a hybrid model of someone building my own brands is something I wanted to have control over my quality and my inserts and my kits and my ability to try a bunch of different things. Um, what size does this start to make sense for? Like what size business, what size, you know, warehouse fulfillment center does, does, um, you know, this service make sense for and at what level are like, you know, what needs to be done ahead of time before something like this starts to make sense? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And one of the things we actually started doing as well is not only provide the robots, but provide a full solution. So we also provide an ERP, a warehouse execution uh, system. Um, and what that does is it makes sure that everything is balanced within the warehouse. We've seen it a lot. A lot of people sometimes uh, deploy automations. They bring automation in. For example, you improve your picking speed. But if your pack out is not improved, everything will just get held up over there. Or if you have problems with the hospital, you have problems with shorts, with people putting the wrong things at the wrong places. Then you have all these kind of things. And you really need a system to do that. The WMS system sort of claim to do it, but they really don't do a good job. They basically get all the orders, they give it to the warehouse manager, and they say, good luck. You got to wave it. You got to figure out how to do that. So the ERP system now that every one of our customers uses can actually run by itself. So for a company like yours, we'll probably start with that software portion, which just optimizes people's um, paths where they go and pick. We have this uh, notion of, well, we have this system we developed called India Smart Path, where we look at spatial batching. So sometimes, you know, you try to batch together the same item. We understand everything in 3D. We actually map it. So what we're doing is if you have two items that are right next to each other, then it'll be a good place to send a person there because he'll pick both of those items right away and not have to walk far. So we often start with that. And that is a full solution. Again, we include Packout QC where we're helping both maintain not just the quality of what goes out, but also if there's any issues. So somebody right away, you know, uh, said, hey, this was short or this was the wrong item. 
the system automatically goes in and makes sure that there's another person picking that. Because one of the things we're always working with, and this is something that WMSs don't do, is we work with SLAs, not necessarily priorities. So oftentimes in WMS systems, you would set a priority. You'll say, hey, this is a high priority for me. But that is a really difficult concept uh, in the real warehouse because often what you do is, let's say you have your uh, UPS that goes out at 7 o'clock. you got to pick all the items before 7 o'clock. So it doesn't matter if one order is high priority, second or high priority. And what usually happens, if you have something in the morning, it might be low priority. But if you have, a, let's say, you know, a 24-hour SLA or you say same-day shipping SLA, then that means if it's five o'clock, that order better be as close to the truck as possible because that truck is leaving at seven o'clock. So in some yeah. sense, with the warehouse manager, they will kind of look at these orders and start upping up the priorities automatically. So this, so our system instead, what we've done is just design SLA right into it. So what you do is you say, hey, I need this order on the truck by seven o'clock. And the system will automatically sort of shift the priorities in real time. So for example, if it got picked in the morning, but it was short, we might have some more time, we'll wait. But if it's seven o'clock, we might issue somebody right away to go pick it because you got to maintain that SLA. You got to bring that you know order out the door. And that is something that I think every actually company needs before they even dig into automation, because we've just seen it time and time again, where they deploy just the automation, but they don't have that system that, um, again, the warehouse execution system that manages that. And then all that money that went into the automation doesn't end up proving anything. And then they often don't do it the second time because they feel like, you know, I didn't get my ROI from it. This wasn't great. This was mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah, it's been my picking. But overall, how come my orders are still not getting up? And that's something that we really have to fix first. So we often you know, do that. So we start with the software first. And then when we introduce the robots, the robots, in a sense, are just shrinking the whole warehouse. So now with this buffer, we're basically taking all these containers and even pre-work, um, moving them closer to where the people are. So now they don't have to walk as close as um, by the fact we lay them out, the robots, you know, through that picker, we'll put them right next to each other. So every touch is a pick. So you're basically not moving inches between, you know, between every pick. So that's how we get those very high pick rates. And you just rip through that as quickly. as Wow. Possible. It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. You know, as someone that has been running brands uh, in e-commerce for years, I've worked with over 300 brands. So most of those brands had different warehouses. There's very few of them that were using the same warehousing, right? Um, once in a while, you have someone use the same partner as before. But I've talked to so many different warehouses and 3PLs, uh, and they all have their own way of doing things, right? Some of them are e-commerce first some, or digital first. Some of them are not. Some of them are pallet in, pallet out. Some of them are pick, pack, ship. Some of them are, you know, so many differences uh, in the way that they do everything and understanding that, um, you know, you're talking about, okay, so you've set up these automations. Why am I not fulfilling more orders faster? You know, even though my pick is faster because there's bottlenecks. Um, supply chain and warehousing is a huge bottleneck for me in regards to growing businesses. Um, you know, time and time again, whether it's pandemic, whether it's supply chain issues, even before that, for the nine years before the pandemic, right? Um, you know, there's issues where we can only sell so much as, as the people can prep and get yep. ready for Amazon or can get out the door. Um, and so it, it, and at least in the Amazon world or the ecosystem, you start getting bad reviews, you start getting cancellations, you start getting dinged by Amazon, you start getting bad reviews. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the thing about e-commerce and the Amazon ecosystem is that it's all tied together. So, um, you know, return rates, like all those things all play into the algorithms of 
of continued momentum for sales, at least on Amazon, if we're talking to Amazon's world. So um, me understanding that really warehousing and supply chain is the starting point of a healthy ecosystem. Um, and it can, you know, it's the straw that can break the camel's back. You know, if you're trying to push sales and you have investors pushing you to grow all these businesses and things like that, well, it's like, if the warehouse isn't prepping product right, if the warehouse isn't getting product out the door, if the warehouse isn't, you know, um, uh, thinking about, um, you know, st- restocks and like what needs to be done and forecasting and, and all those things, then, you know, it doesn't matter how good at my job I am. Um, we'll get bottlenecked there. And I don't think enough people think about that whenever they're picking partners, whenever they're like, you know, if they're doing this internally or building it out, um, it's just not, it's just not their priority when they really think about growing a business or, or scaling it. But it's absolutely so important. It's why, while I'm far from being pro at it, um, you know, we, we, as someone building my own brands internally and getting equity in others and things like that, I wanted to make sure it was something that I could control uh, you know, when the time came to to grow my first hundred million dollar brand internally, um, and it's all going to start and end with with workflow in the warehouse and and being able to be creative there. A lot of the profit margin is in the warehouse. Yeah. Um, well, so, so all now these things one like of the most things, people don't think about, you know. Yeah, one of the things we saw with some some of our current customers, we're sort of shifting the paradigm a little bit from like grow at all cost to earnings. So companies are really getting rated on mm-hmm. how well they're, you know, posting their earnings. Well, in order to get earnings, you got to ship the stuff out the door. If you don't ship it, your earnings are going to be squat. So they're starting to see that and they're starting to see all these bottlenecks and all these issues that they're having in the warehouse that is directly tying in into their earnings and the Wall Street valuation of them. So we're actually getting a lot of momentum from that. People saying, look, we need to automate because we're going to drown next year if we yeah. don't do that. Um, and I think that's an important thing. And I, and I think a lot of people do realize like what needs to be done. Well, sorry, not what needs to be done. They realize that something has to be done. They're just not quite sure what needs to be done. They know there's a problem. You see it when you go to the warehouse, you see the person running around aimlessly trying to find a product or some people just sitting around or some people. And it's not their fault, right? It's just their manager is often extremely busy. They're handling many people. Um, you know, I know Amazon gets really strict on their you know policy and stuff like that. But I heard even now, because it's a very, um, you know, the labor is so short that they're giving a lot of leniency now because they, you know, if they hire this person, I mean, they're going to have a hard time if they fire him. It's going to be really difficult. Nobody else wants to do that. And I really yep. believe as, as a, you know, just as a society, we really should rethink the warehousing instead of like this big, boring place that we want to, want to build it like a spaceship, right? So it's fully automated where people are going to be like, I want to go work in the warehouse when I grow up and we could build that. And definitely provide the services that people want, right? So people want these things. They want it right away. And we have to make sure we can supply that. But we have to supply it intelligently. We can't, like I mentioned, you can't have half of the U.S. ordering things online and the other half running around in warehouses picking for us. It's Not only it's not going to scale, it's just nobody's going to want to do that. Yep, totally. I know you, that's very well said. Um, as we're coming up on time... <clears throat> I want to wrap out with just a couple of questions for you. Like one, what is, uh, you know, what is, what is some advice to a founder, um, you know, that might have a 3PL or a warehouse or knows that like, this is a problem in their business. Like, you know, what's one tip you would give them as a, as a, an area to focus on to start maybe on this journey, whether it's working with you guys or just looking into automation, looking at into how to get better. What's an advice, a tip of a uh, piece of advice. And then two, something you guys are excited about internally 
um, you know, that you guys are working on in, in the business. Cool. Yeah. And then, so for the first part, actually, I'll break it into two parts. One, I would just say, you know, just from business in general and entrepreneurship is a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to get a business off the ground. And you often look at the success, you have your great idea and you look at the success, but it's all the middle that takes a lot of effort and a lot of things. So I just say, you just got to stick through it. And I think the people who sort of quote unquote fail are the ones who just give up. They're like, I can't do that anymore. So definitely it's just, you know, you got to keep thinking of new innovations and new stuff like that. Um, in terms of e-commerce, right, and being successful in e-commerce, I definitely think finding the right partner where the um, the priorities of both companies sort of match. So often I think sometimes, you know, people just sell robots. And if you just sell the robot, well, now you're part of the robot business. You've got to be in charge of its productivity. you got to be in charge of, you know, making that robot work. And we see that a lot where somebody just buys one robot and then they don't do it, obviously, because... It's not their business. Their business is not robotics. Their business is being coming at 3PL. And then they play around with it and they just toss it and they, you know, move forward. So I think really having that right relationship and the right priorities and making sure that it's aligned together. So, for example, like I said, with us, we really don't sell robots. I mean, we sell the productivity and making sure that you're selling, you're selling the quality of life to the warehouse workers. Exactly. And and the, and the profitability of more efficient uh, warehousing. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's about efficiency, but also about, like you mentioned, making sure you're actually getting the work done. Because if you miss that order, now you get a bad review and how much is that worth? And that becomes a really big problem. And a lot of customers that we start working with, I think just you can look at your warehouse, like how many mispicks do you have? Right. Um, people just going to places where it's actually not there anymore because somebody else placed it, but they didn't update the thing. And so there's a lot of issues that, again, we call it the digitization phase. So definitely, I think looking at digitizing the warehouse first, making sure you understand before you even introduce automation is a must. Otherwise, you're going to introduce automation. It might help you a little bit, but it's definitely not going to utilize it as much as you know you could. Um, on great the tip. Yeah, it's a great tip. It's a, a big thing. And, and and what are you guys working on internally? Um, I mean, everything you've said has already blown me away about what you guys yeah. have created, but but just like something you guys are working on internally, uh, you know, as a team that you're excited about. Yeah. So I think one really cool thing we're doing, which is really difficult and, um, you know, adds a lot to the density. So trying to get things extremely dense. So obviously, you know, we're producing some now taller robots and getting a little bit higher. But we're also doing containers that are very much like basically butt against each other. That means the robots have to be extremely precise. But we're trying to do this with very low-cost robots. So it's not, and even if you look at standard ASRS systems, usually they have like four to five inches between gaps. And again, all that ends up eating up quite a bit of space throughout the warehouse. So right now we're basically bringing them together. We have our own patented versions of some things that we came up with and allows the robot to basically become a very cost-effective robot. So our robots are not super expensive. So we're able to produce that, but be able to take a container and basically have zero tolerance and push that next to other containers and at the end wow. of the day, that just builds tons of density. So you can have a very, very dense warehouse. And I think part of it is just real estate and, you know, having micro, these micro DCs that we're working on that are in the city. And in the city, you're not going to have a big uh, warehouse. And you might have, you know, maybe a, one floor of uh, 50,000 square foot, but you got to store maybe 100,000, 200,000 items in there and fulfill from there because that's how you're going to get that to that one hour. So I think all that is going to lead to those kind of things. And we're very excited by that as we're bringing that forward. No, that's super cool. It's going to be fun to watch you guys come to life with that. 
Um, as we sign off, where can people contact you? Where can people learn more? Where can people follow your journey? Um, get more information. Sure. So obviously our website, so Invia Robotics, that's I-N-V-I-A Robotics. Uh, it stands for Innovation Via Robotics. And, you know, we have all the information there. Uh, if anybody wants to contact me personally, you can email me, Lior at NVIRobotics.com. Lior, this has been uh, so informational. It's been a pleasure. Um, and once again, this episode of Startup Puzzle is sponsored by our friends over at Quip Bid Auctions. Join, sell, earn. It's that easy with Equip Bid Auctions. Become an affiliate and start or grow your independent business by visiting equip-bid.me backslash startup today. Even easier, head to Startup Hustle and, and .io and look for uh, links there with all of our partners. Click on our partners page. You'll see Equip Bid's founder. Andy has everything set up for you to go make money. Go equip your business within a business. I know I personally am in real estate uh as well uh one of my other ventures and we find just the craziest things in houses um so a great place to start with, with some of those you never know what you can you would you can make with some of the old stuff in your place uh Lior, thank you so much for your time um i'm excited to to continue to see uh innovation in the warehousing industry and it's it's amazing to know uh you're leading the way so thank you again for your time no problem thank you so much andrea a lot of fun and any other questions, we'll be happy to answer. Of course. And thank you again, Startup Puzzle family, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Startup Puzzle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.